Welcome to episode 154 of the Women of the Military podcast. Sometimes the path to a military career isn't straightforward, and that's what happened in Elizabeth's journey to becoming an Air Force Public Affairs Officer. Elizabeth had dreams that began when she was young and watching her dad fly in the Air Force. She applied to the Air Force Academy but didn't get in and instead went to the Naval Academy. But there was a twist in her senior year when she applied for a cross commission into the Air Force and was selected to be an Air Force officer. And since she was an English major, they picked her career field, which was public affairs. It's another great interview, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? For me, it was a military family connection, right? So my father had gone to the Air Force Academy and he had brought me to many different Air Force bases. You know, he was flying out of Dover and out of Andrews. And I remember being, you know, four feet high and going to watch him do touch and goes when he was flying his C-5, you know, so those memories get in there deep. And so I was familiar with the mission. I was also a very stubborn teenager and wanted to get really far away from home. And I'm sure there's plenty of women who felt that way. You know, so I saw my classmates doing the standard thing, going to the local colleges around the home. And I'm like, I want to get as far away as possible. So I applied to the Air Force Academy, didn't get in. I was blind as a bat. And they were like, hey, you can't be a pilot. We don't want you. And then the Naval Academy actually ended up matching me up. And I was very thankful for that. But it also meant that I had to go to a year of Army prep school. So my beginning is a little joint flavor. And I went to a year of Army prep school, went to the Naval Academy, and then cross-commissioned into the Air Force. And that's how I ended up here. That's like such a crazy story. You're like, and I was in all three services before I even commissioned. (laughs) That's so crazy. I interviewed someone who went to the Naval Academy prep school and then she went to the Naval Academy. So it's interesting. Why did you end up at the Army prep school? Is it because there weren't enough spots or like, how did that all work? Yeah, I think it was the the nature of I kind of became late in the process then, right? So I was applying to the Air Force Academy and then I went to, I remember my dad and I flew out to Annapolis and it was beautiful, right? And we went to, we met with the Naval Academy prep program administrators. And they kind of gave us a list of places that we could choose. And frankly, I was I was trying to be a little sneaky. I chose uh, New Mexico Military Institute as an Army prep school because they had air and Navy prep programs. And I thought, hmm, I'll do the Navy prep program, but I'll apply to the Air Force Academy again <laughs> and see if I get lucky. And I didn't. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I believe that the Lord had a path for me and my family and what that would mean. And so I feel like that was our that was where I was supposed to end up. And I'm so thankful for it to this day. Like I have such a strong Naval Academy uh, network and some really true friends from that time. So I'm just so glad it worked out. 
So when you were attending the Naval Academy, were you planning on cross-commissioning the whole time? No. In fact, I remember being a plebe freshman (laughs) and, you know, you're standing up against the bulkhead, the wall and getting yelled at. And this upperclassman says, Kraft, what do you want to do with your life? You know, what do you do in the Navy? And I'm like, sir, I don't know, Jack, sir. He's like, you don't have no idea how this works. (laughs) And I really didn't. I didn't understand that you had to do a service selection that was operational. I didn't know that you had to pick SWO or be a pilot or I just had no idea. And so after, of course, I came, became more familiar with the process and what we were actually learning to do, I kind of was going through my choices. I'm like, well, I got to be honest with myself. I am not tough enough to be a Marine, or at least I didn't think so at the time. I didn't want to be a SWO surface warfare because I knew I got terribly seasick. And so I just kept looking at those options and I'm like, you know, what do I want to do? I called my dad and he said, hey, did you know you can cross commission? And I'm like, well, I, I didn't know that. It's actually in right there in Title 10. Your commitment when you go to the service academies is just to the Department of Defense, not to a specific service. So that process takes several months to walk through. You got to apply. You, you, I remember sitting, you know, you're young and scared and 20 years old thinking that you know everything about the world. And then you go to this meeting and I remember there were five admirals sitting on one side of the table and five generals sitting on the other, chaired by an Air Force general. And they're kind of grilling you like, why do you want to come into the Air Force? And my argument was, I thought I wanted to be a spy at the time. You know, I, again, when you're dreaming about what is this, what am I going to do with my life? What cool things can I do? I thought I wanted to be in the CIA. So my, my path was going to be go into the Air Force, do OSI, and then eventually launch into some three-letter agency. I was an English major. And so the Air Force said, yeah, that's cute. You're going to be a public affairs officer. <laughs> Love your plans. That's awesome. But since you can write, we're going to put you in PA. And so that's, that's how I ended up here. You're the second person that I've interviewed who cross-commissioned from the Navy. She did a, like, a semester, I think, at the Air Force Academy, and she ended up meeting her husband. And so she commissioned into the Air Force so that they could be stationed together. So I knew it was a thing. It's not very common, but it is common because I've interviewed more than one person who's done it. So that's really interesting. Yeah. When I did it, this this is back in 2002 when I was there. What they had said was in the past, you had to find somebody who would swap with you. So you had to reach out to the other academy. And then at some point they realized, well, that's a little too difficult. And so in my class, there were actually seven of us who applied to cross commission, but only two of us were chosen. So I think every year is slightly different, although they have gone away from that requirement of forcing people to find someone to swap. I think that makes it a little easier. Yeah, that would be really hard. Especially since it's not like you have like your network built up. That would be a little bit more complicated. I think that's good they got rid of that. So you ended up doing PA, even though you originally wanted to do OSI. So where did you go for your first assignment and what were you doing? To go into the Air Force, it was like the best feeling in the world. <laughs> I got to be honest, because once you highlight yourself amongst your classmates to say, hey, I want to quote jump ship. Oh, my gosh, I was getting such a rash of crap from my classmates, right? They're like, oh, you want to go into the chair force, you know, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so I thought, oh, my goodness, what if I don't get picked, you know, and then I did. And I was like, oh, thank the- thank goodness. You know, they set you up with a call to the career field managers down in Texas. And so I I remember talking to this major again, you're like this baby midshipman. I'm like, Ooh, I'm talking to a major. This is so important. And he's like, you know, you're going to be an overage wherever you go. Cause again, I was a little late in the process. So He's like, where do you want to go in the Air Force? And I'm like, oh, I wasn't prepared for that question, but I love Florida. And uh, so anywhere in Florida sounds great. And he's like, well, what do you know about Patrick 
you know, Air Force Base. And I'm like, I know nothing, but I will learn everything. So he's like, well, there's that's where you're going. Congratulations. It was like a five minute conversation. And I'm like, okay, sweet. So, you know, and it's not like Google was really a thing, you know, back then. So I just kind of waited until I showed up to my first assignment. And I remember I drove down there with my dad, beautiful beaches, you know, who ends up at Patrick for their first duty assignment? It was this huge, like amazing thing. And I remember talking to a bunch of people once I got there, they're like, how did you arrange this? I'm like, "Eh, it's weird because I came from the Navy. But what's really cool is, so I began my career there. I know we're kind of jumping ahead, but I just moved here with my family, my civilian position that I just accepted. We came back to the Space Coast. So it feels like a complete circle. You know, it's, it's it's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, my husband just transferred to the Space Force. So I was like, I know what they do at Patrick. (laughs) That's a really cool assignment. And in 2002, like the space industry wasn't what it is today. But I'm sure there were launches and stuff going on that, you know, the rest of the world wasn't paying attention to. So what was that experience like? Besides being on the beaches. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the, and the way you phrase that is perfect because you're right. Space was still kind of this emerging commercial business too. And of course, in the military, we knew, you know, all those military applications. So in those years I was stationed there, we did the first Delta Four and Atlas V launches. We did the first Mars rover launches, which was so exciting, you know, and, and frankly, this was when I, my eyes were really opened to say, wow, public affairs is really important. And this job of like explaining to the public what these critical missions are is really actually fruitful. So if you go back and you do those personality tests and you kind of like, who am I as a human? You realize that the people who want to do spy work are actually the same kind of people who do public affairs because it's all about influence operations, right? So later on, I was like, oh, that's satisfying to know I'm still doing, you know, good things like that. So yeah, when I was here, again, young baby lieutenant, your eyes are kind of getting opened to this, the meaning of these missions, how it connects to the joint force and the significance of it. At the same time, that's just when SpaceX was becoming a thing. And I remember hearing about this concept, like, oh, they want to do experimental launches and and non-DOD entities want to get into it. Wow. that's So I remember being like, I wonder how they're going to pull that off. And now years later, we're kind of seeing this progression and really how it's it's offered competition in the marketplace. Um, it's it's really cool to see that progression. Yeah, this isn't a SpaceX podcast, but my husband, obviously Space Force. So we watch like a lot of SpaceX YouTube things and I need to figure out how to watch the launch tonight. And I have a meeting at 830 and I was like, dang, I didn't plan that well. I was like, well, you know, it's happening at 820. Maybe it'll get delayed till Thursday. I'm a little SpaceX crazy, but I just think it's really cool what they're doing. And like you said, like the PA portion of like even the Space Force, people don't understand like its role and its mission. And it's because a lot of it is classified, but they don't really understand like why it's needed. And I think it was a total PA disaster because a lot of people are like, oh, it's a thing Trump's doing. And I'm like, that's like not even the whole story. And there's so much more to it. But there is there's like no PA out there that's loud enough to overtake the media on a whole to get the what the mission and the purpose of the Space Force is. And I think we're seeing improvements there, right? So yeah, I think I think the fact the way that the Department of the Air Force embraced, for example, the Netflix series Space Force was was good, right? And I think we're slowly starting to see more and more average citizens appreciate what they gain from space, right? The fact that their GPS works and their phones work because of our constant, you know, work in space. And and we're I know even in my current role, we are constantly trying to highlight the fact that 
we need to protect those constellations because truly our way of life is rooted in the offerings uh, that the space domain provides. So yeah, it's a, it's absolutely crucial. And I'm glad to see that we're improving the way that we talk about it as well. One of the things that we recently talked about here in my current role at L3 Harris is, you know, we need to start normalizing the conversation about how dangerous a space war would be, right? Because frankly, people have this connotation about nuclear war, that it would be so devastating, right? And I don't know why more people don't talk about space war in that same way, because if there are debris fields that knock out entire constellations, that's permanent. That There's no going back. We don't have the capability that I know of yet to clean up that debris. And so when it comes to holding our adversaries responsible for the damage they may cause in space or the permanent effects, like I would love to see more conversations rooted in that, that we really need to take space operations and potential space war as serious as nuclear war. Yeah, that's really true. I'm just thinking of like all the different interviews and like a couple of years ago, China blew up one of their satellites and they made like thousands of or maybe even millions, but all this space junk that now uh, the people who are monitoring our satellites have to watch for it and move. I don't think people understand all the stuff that's going on. And I think a lot of it is because it's a lot's classified. And then there's a lot that just never makes it to like national media. And like you said, it's not like people think space wars and they're like, like Star Wars. Like, and you're like, no, not Star Wars or Star Trek. It's totally different. But yeah, that's a really good comparison. I'm going to link in the show notes to uh, some of the resources that I'm talking about. So if you're interested in space and if you want to learn about joining the space force, you can get more information about like what's going on in the space arena. After you were at Patrick, where did you go next? So I was I was lucky enough and blessed enough to have really good teammates at Patrick. We won a bunch of awards. We won some writing awards, especially with our work. I didn't have a chance to mention this before, but one of the really important missions we executed there was when the Shuttle Columbia broke apart. And that obviously halted the shuttle program for many years. And I was actually the public affairs officer on duty that day. And so that moment and series of days following really shaped my understanding of how important public affairs and PR is, even in servicing families who are experiencing tragedy, right? Making sure your comments are clean and accurate and timely can make such a huge difference when families are waiting for information or when communities are hanging on your every word to see what's going on. So that was really impactful for me. And it really just shaped my appreciation for public affairs as a career field. Firmly after Patrick, I was like, there's no turning back for me. I'm, I'm a committed public affairs person. And I leaned forward and I wanted to go then, okay, so I've been doing this space mission for a while. What else is out there? What are the other major commands, obviously? And so I looked to ACC. And at that time, F- the F-22 operations were really the hot topic. And so I applied to go to Langley and I was selected to go be the deputy chief of public affairs there for all of the first operational F-22 squadrons. And so we did IOC and FOC there for the F-22s and we did their first I would say mock deployment. We, we went to Alaska to, to pretend we were going overseas and it was really neat. So a wonderful experience there and really pushed my boundaries of understanding, okay, how do we create an entire communications campaign, right? So you go from this baby lieutenant phase to, okay, now I'm understanding how to do my job a little bit more. And, and, and that was a wonderful opportunity. So, so Langley was my, was my follow-on assignment. That's really cool. So I was, I graduated high school in 2002 and then I was going through ROTC as like the F-22. So it brought back a lot of memories because I went to Edwards when it was still in the testing phase and we got to see it like take off and 
nobody really had seen the F-22 and it was like so exciting. So it's really cool to hear about how you went to Langley and were at the Air Combat Command and you were hands-on sharing the story and letting the public know like what the new aircraft was. That's really cool. And that's what's like PA is the coolest job. And that's what's I'm good. glad. I mean, I, I agree because we get to see a cross cutting of all these cool missions. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, going from the space side to then this very hands on tactile operations, because it's not very often we go and get to like touch a rocket. Right. I mean, we did, but it's like very rare. And then you go to a flight line where these operations are so dynamic all the time and the sound and like truly the sound of freedom, you know, and it was just such a pump up experience every day going to work. And then to to have this emerging aircraft that at the time, again, and, and still now is just so cutting edge, the stealth technology, even the angles of the aircraft, you know, deflecting the radar was just such a cool story to tell. And of course, it was drawing a lot of congressional interest and a lot of interest from the Pentagon. So again, understanding then that our job, now we have to bucket out certain audiences, right? Who are we talking to today? Is it is it the defense industry? Is it Congress? Is it the Pentagon? And truly understanding how to shape our message for a particular audience, that was where I really first started to really grasped how important that was. It's that marketing stuff of like, you have to talk to who you're specifically talking to or else you can't talk to everyone because then it's just a bunch of noise and it's not very helpful. So after you were at Langley or was there anything we missed? If we missed something, you could talk about it. But where did you go after that? Well, while I was at Langley, I had a couple of really good mentors who encouraged me to apply to go to the Thunderbirds. So that was my next assignment, which I would say more than any other assignment shaped the trajectory of the rest of my career, because it's sort of a game changer when you're selected amongst your peers to go serve as a Thunderbird. You know, it means a lot. You're you're kind of like at the, you know, you're showcasing your career field to all these other operators and you know, you're going to go out and you're going to take that mission and that and that narrative to hundreds of different bases cases hundreds of days on the road and truly highlighting the entire force, right? So for me, so I was I was selected to go to Thunderbirds, fantastic, but I was still pretty young. <laughs> I was still I was still a captain. And so it felt like this daunting task of how do we tell the story of through these very beautiful jets flying in formation, how do we use them to tell the story of the real work going on in the deployed locations? These beautiful polished jets telling the story of the dirty, dusty, complex operations happening downrange. And luckily I had a really great boss, Colonel Kevin Robbins at the time, who understood how to shape the narrative of the squadron and help the pilots understand, like, we are here to represent the combat operations that are going on right now. And it makes such a difference when you have a solid team like that, because it's hard as a PA if you're trying to steer people who aren't malleable, right, or who aren't open to the perspective that you're trying to share. But especially that first year when we were on the team with with him as a boss, it was just, it really melded really well. We also did the first uh, overseas tour uh, since 9-11. So we went to seven different countries in five and a half weeks. And, you know, that was a significant hurdle for us because, you know, a lot of Obviously, as we know, things abruptly changed after 9-11, and there were a lot of things that just were on pause. And so our squadron hadn't taken that message overseas in, in many, many years. And so to orchestrate that and to really showcase to our allies as well, our commitment to them as a partner was huge. And so it was, I would say, a life-changing opportunity and one of the assignments that I would say has really shaped the rest of my career going forward. Yeah, I interviewed Cole Malowski, the first female Thunderbird pilot. I think her episode was 93, if I remember off the top of my head, somewhere in the 90s. She talked a lot about the support team that 
you know, she's like, there's the pilots. I think you said there's seven of them. And like, they're who everybody sees. But there's so many moving pieces. We were mainly focused on like the maintainers. But the PA aspect of it is critical because like you said, it's taking the shiny jets and like connecting it with the combat and how important it is because it is, it's a PI operation. Like that's what the Thunderbirds are for. It's to raise morale and to, and to share the stories of the military. So that's really cool that you got to do that. Yep. And Fifi was on the team that first year with me. So I got to learn a lot from her. I'm sure, I don't know if she mentioned this or not, because she's she is really humble about some of these things, but she took time to write back to every single young girl that ever wrote into her. Right. And so I, that's just very inspirational. And that's, and that's one of those things that you go, yep, that I want to do that too. <laughs> I want to be, and she did such a great job of connecting with, with young ladies and she understood the importance. Now I will say also who joined with me was Samantha Weeks and she was the first solo pilot. So Fifi was the first diamond pilot. And then Sam Weeks combo as her call sign was the first solo pilot. So two very different. And so that was really cool to t- kind of tell that story too, of how their roles are different. Right. So Fifi got to do the nice, beautiful flying around, you know, and then, and then combo got to do that upside down flying and fast passes. And so that was also a cool narrative for us to explore, especially when we got to talk to these young girls to talk about, hey, it was a hook for us to explain there are different operations out there and there are different missions or different styles of flying. And so whatever feels right to you, whether you want to go be a, a tanker gal or whether you want to go be a fast moving jet, there were options for you. So that was a really cool way to help teach the young girls and boys that there were many different options for them if they wanted to come serve. Yeah, it's so cool that you got to be part of the PA team and and tell that story because I don't think she mentioned that in the episode, but that doesn't surprise me because she's so laid back and she felt such a responsibility to make sure the door stayed open for the next generation of military women. So it makes sense that she would also want to encourage the next generation of military women, you know, by responding to the fan mail that she got. So that just, I mean, that's a testament to her character and I'm not surprised. Absolutely. And I actually get to see Combo Weeks, one of my Thunderbird friends tonight. We're going to go out to the beach and watch the launch. So the inspiration for launch that's going tonight, we're going to go out on the beach and bring our kids. And so again, it's all about like growing that next generation and how do we show them in a humble way that there are options for service, whether or not they choose to wear the uniform, right? And that's, for me, it's kind of like, I've always had to strike that balance because there have been times when I've taken off the uniform and I know that I'm still serving in a very meaningful way. So as I'm raising my daughters, four and a half and two and a half year olds, actually, they're closer to almost five and three now. Like, What do I want to show them about service? I don't want them to feel like they have to go put on the uniform, right? Although I'd be gratified if they did. I just want them to appreciate the understanding that serving your fellow community members, serving your neighbors and your nation, there are many ways to do that. And so... um, Um, that's one of the reasons I want to bring her out tonight and show her the big rocket launch. I'm so jealous. We were in Florida right before the pandemic and there was supposed to be a SpaceX launch and they delayed it. And because my husband was TDY at Patrick and we were like, no, but I heard it's amazing to see in person. So well, and you can really feel it in your chest, too. I mean, miles away. And so, yeah, I'm I'm excited, but I don't mean to make you jealous. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you pictures if we get to take some, though. Jealous in a good way excited it's 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 so cool and eventually hopefully one day we can we can see a launch in person so so you said that was a real turning point in your career so what happened next 
So I, I, you know, a bunch of different things, but I was actually tapped to go on a deployment right after the Thunderbirds, which ended up getting canceled. And it kind of like made me start questioning like, okay, what do I do with my life? You know, how long am I going to stay in active duty? And I ended up choosing at that point to go into the Air National Guard for many different reasons. And that's a whole other podcast that we could fill up. But I, but I felt this draw to have some more flexibility in, in caretaking my own career or curating my own career. So at one of my air shows, I had met the commander of the, of the um, 113th Wing at the DC Air National Guard. And he was like, hey, anytime you want to come into the Guard, you know, come over. And that again, that was really when I started understanding the power of a network, right? Having friends and saying, oh, you know, he, I'm going to take him up on that. I'm going to go talk to him about it. And so I made the switch from active duty over to the Air National Guard. And that's really where the nature of my understanding of a professional career started to change because I felt like you're either committed to active duty the whole time, 20 years or you're not. But actually, as I started understanding the Guard and the Reserve more, there's so much more to offer. There are so many more options. And truly, and I'm proud of the Space Force for continuing this conversation about permeability, right? What do we want the future of our part-time force to look like? We want them to be able to come in, we flip a switch, we have the back, the systems and the, and the computer systems where we can go, okay, you're not on duty one day, flip a switch, you're on duty for the next seven days and your pay and your healthcare and all that kind of stuff. It's super super easy. We definitely don't have those systems right now, but we need to get there because if we have all this talent in the civilian workforce and they also have a heart to serve, we need to make it easy for people to do that. And so I'm really glad that the Space Force is pursuing that conversation and pushing for OSD and pushing for Congress to get there. And I know we're, we're not quite there yet, but I'm hoping in the next NDAA cycle or two that we'll get that approved. And what the changes that they're proposing to Title 10 should actually impact the other services as well. Because again, it's that flexibility and that permeability that's so important for people. So I don't want to go down that bunny trail too long. But the bottom line is back in the day, I think it was like 2010, 2009, went to DC, joined the Air National Guard. So I kind of started working that mission. At that point, we were just recognizing the 10 year anniversary of September 11th. And that particular unit was the first unit to start flying aerospace control alert missions. So protecting the Capitol 24-7. Since then, they've run more alerts than any other mission. And it was really a proud moment for me to be able to associate with that unit. And so for years, I stayed nested in the DC National Guard. I got a chance to deploy to Afghanistan. I served in Kabul. And so all the things that have been happening over the last few weeks are really hitting me and my family pretty hard because I have friends who were very impacted by this. And thankfully, most of the folks that I worked with were able to get out. Uh, but there were still some of their family members that we were immediately trying to validate employment for or just recommend them for special immigrant visas. It's, it's been a hard, a hard um, few weeks to digest all that. So I, I did that deployment for about seven weeks. We were working with the Afghan vice presidential palace. And what we were really doing was trying to defeat the Taliban communication network. And these are these moments where you kind of look at yourself and go, did we win? I don't know. I know we won some battles. And I know that for an entire generation of young Afghans, we gave them the opportunity to experience a different level of stability and a different level of peace than they ever would have if we weren't there. So when people are questioning what was it worth or what did we do? I bring myself back to that. There were babies born in Afghanistan who are now 19, 20, who grew up in an entire time where there was some stability provided by us and our allies and the coalition. So I have to come back to that as a, to find my peace, right? But I know that there's so much more work to be done. I think that as an Afghanistan war veteran, like the, it has been a really hard week. And I think I by happenstance, happened to start 
therapy in late June and I'm in the middle of therapy right now. And I needed this therapy so badly that I had no idea it was coming and how this would affect me. And so it felt really silly. I've been home for like 10 years from my deployment and now I'm getting therapy. It was the time that I needed the therapy the most. And I just think if you're a veteran and you're listening to this and you're struggling, like even if you didn't deploy, but you served in the military and you feel a connection to Afghanistan, that you should reach out to get help. Colon Veterans Network is a great organization. Like I can hear in your voice what I can feel in my heart of like the pain and like the struggle over the last few weeks. And so I think it's just really important that we stop and say like, check in, make sure that you're doing okay and get help if you need it. Because I've needed this therapy so much and I had no idea that that I was going to need it in a few weeks. I like kind of needed it. And then I was like, oh, I really need this. So I understand. I'm I'm so glad that you said that. And to take a moment to, to add on to that, I, I, I just, well, let me just say again, thank you for saying that. Thank you for owning that and, and sharing that. It's like totally not, not even just acceptable. It's great that you reached out and sought out help. And I, I, I did that earlier a couple of, couple of years ago. Cause I, I mean, it's interesting. Like I was having trouble sleeping. I was reacting to things that I didn't want to react to. And so I, I feel much more centered now, but truly these last few weeks have definitely brought up emotions that I wasn't prepared for. And what I turned to was like reaching out and texting a lot of my friends who were on that deployment with me and one guy in particular, Morgan Murphy, we call each other DB, deployment bestie. And uh, I texted him like, dude, I'm just thinking about you. You know, like, how are you doing? And I think those moments, I know I saw a lot of my friends kind of commenting on the same thing. Like, well, just reach out to your friends, just touch in with them, touch base. And he he sent a couple pictures of us from our deployment that I hadn't seen in years. And it just warmed my heart so much. So yeah, those moments where you can center on your friends or center on those those connections for therapy are just so, so important. Yeah. And Cohen Veteran Network is a free therapy option for post 9-11 vets. And I did a podcast interview with the Penn State branch of Cohen Veteran Network. So I'll link to that in the show notes so you can get more information because that's what I'm using right now. And it's amazing. And it's only like a 12 week session, but it's like exactly what I needed. And it's helped me so much. And I also meant to stop and then I got distracted because I was listening to you. But I think it's really important to talk about like the switch from like active duty to National Guard, because I think my biggest regret when I transitioned is like, I was like, well, I'm getting out. And I didn't ever look at the National Guard or reserves because I don't know, I just didn't think that it was a good option. Learning about it now, I'm like, I didn't even consider it. At least if I had considered it and like done my research and then been like, no, it's not for me, then... I think that would have been a lot better instead. I think it was partly because I was a civil engineer and I didn't want to deploy and I was so afraid of deploying, but I could have cross-trained into a different career field and had more stability that made it more work-life balance. But there is still a lot of sacrifice, but I think that you should at least consider it if you're in, if you should do the guard or reserves, or if you should just get out. Because sometimes it probably was the best decision for our family since my husband is active duty. But sometimes I'm like, why didn't I look into it? Yeah, it's really hard. It's hard to know what the best option is. But I will say for me in that situation, I knew I wanted maximum options. That was my goal. Give myself maximum options. And so again, I can't even remember which mentor at the time was like, look, don't get straight out. Like, I know you're frustrated. Part of the reason I was getting out was I was super frustrated with the current boss that I had, right? And some of the misogyny that was going on and just, you know, your standard negative, a reaction to a negative environment. And so in looking 
looking back on it, I was making an emotional decision, but I'm glad that the mentors that I had were like, just give yourself options, you know, stay in the guard. You can do minimum like part-time once, once a month, you know, you're not really committing yourself to much. And I'm like, okay, that's smart, you know, because I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to get away from the toxic people. And so that was one of the better decisions that I, that I was counseled to make was just give it a couple of months. You're going to get away from these people and you're going to rethink things and feel differently about your path forward. And it's true. But I'm also glad that I made that leap because had I not done that, I wouldn't have been able to explore in some of these civilian career fields that have really shaped where I'm at now. So my first, I would say my first like civilian job, I thought like, Hey, let's just do something super fun. Like maybe I want to go work for the, for major league baseball. Maybe I want to go be one of those like sideline reporters. Like, again, still very young and sort of stubborn. Like, I feel like I haven't done anything fun in a long time, which is silly now looking back on it. But again, it's someone I had met on the Thunderbirds. She was like, Hey, if you ever want to come, just like check this out. So I actually reached out to this nice lady. And she was working for the Washington Nationals at the time. And she was their sideline reporter. So she let me intern with them while I was still on duty. I took a six-month sort of TDY as I knew I would be getting out. And so my last active duty assignment was in D.C. helping stand up Global Strike Command. So I was going to work, working all day, helping stand that up. And then at night, I'd scramble over to the baseball stadium and worked like 11 o'clock or midnight interviewing baseball players. I quickly realized, bless their hearts, like they've got some egos on them. (laughs) So like I was trying to escape this like very masculine, toxic environment and like going to this other extreme. I I realized at the time, I'm like, I need to just pay more attention to who I'm putting myself around. There were plenty of good people, right? But also I'm like, I feel like I'm just making frenetic choices right now. I need to like be a little more strategic about my options. And so while I was at one of those baseball games, though, I met the director of a national nonprofit. That nonprofit was called Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. So I don't know if you're familiar with TAPS, but they hired me on to be their uh, director of communications for, for their national organization. And that was where I really started to feel a little more settled in my professional choices. You know, I knew they had a fantastic mission. I knew the work they were doing was hugely important. And I was able to apply my skills that I'd learned in the Air Force directly to benefiting these families. At the same time, though, I had this like hunger, this desire to go downrange because I hadn't deployed yet. So I worked for them for about a year and then through my guard unit, an opportunity came up to deploy. And so that was where I went over to Afghanistan. When I came back, I got picked up for an opportunity to go work as a defense fellow. So I got to go work on the House side, uh, worked for a member of the House Armed Services Committee. After that, I bounced back to civilian life. I was a reporter for about a year. And then I came back to work as a, as a Senate liaison. So I had a, a couple of years there. I kind of bounced back and forth. And again, it was that flexibility that was so satisfying because I was able to like, and again, the orders were not easy. And I went months without pay sometimes, but it was so worth it to be able to take on these opportunities to go, oh, there's a need over there. Let me jump on it. Oh, there's an interesting opportunity over here. Let me jump on it. I will say I was able to do that, I think, because at the time I didn't have kids or a family. You know, it was so much easier to be able to go, well, all right, I don't need as much money these next few months. Like, let me go explore and be a reporter, you know, and the agility there. Now, I know there's a lot of people who find their path and they can they can make those radical choices with their families, too. And I give them all the credit in the world. I just I felt like I had that freedom. You know, I hadn't found the love of my life yet. I hadn't had any babies. So I'm like, let's just keep exploring. Let's just be creative. And then it was while I was working that Senate liaison opportunity when I met my husband. So that uh, in 2000, gosh, what year was that? Uh, I'm showing I'm showing myself here right at the end of 2014 was when I met my husband. And we met on December 30th 
we fell in love on our first date, which was awesome. <laughs> and we got engaged a couple months later. And then, you know, I would say again, like some of the choices I've made as a mom or as an airman were, were influenced by my, where I found myself in life. I knew I could make sort of risky choices if I wanted to, if some people would call them risky, I would call them adventurous, you know? And then now that I've, I've been a mom for the last almost five years and a, and a wife, it does shape your choices. Okay. When my husband and I met and knew that we were going to be together, we kind of had that conversation like, okay, we have two competing careers kind of, right? And I had had enough experiences in my career where I felt comfortable saying he has this very niche job with the Department of Justice. It was very tactical. And so, and it was only based in Quantico, Virginia. And I'm like, okay, well, here's an agreement we can make. I will take on as many staff jobs as I possibly can in the Pentagon so that you can be rooted in your career for as long as possible. And that was working great. It was such a good, respectful way that we approached that, where he's always been so supportive of some of the challenges I had bouncing back and forth between MPA days or full-time orders or whatever. And every now and then I'd come back to him and be like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. The Pentagon can be great at some times, and sometimes it can be really soul sucking. <laughs> so then that brings us to where we are today. So a couple months ago, I was approached by a recruiter and they were looking for a vice president of communications for a, a defense company. And I came to my husband and I said, look, I know that we had this conversation about staying in DC for as long as possible, but this is a really great opportunity for my career. And the pay is right. And it's the top communications position in the company. And I really think that I'll have a chance to influence what they're doing. And so we talked about it and prayed about it. And this is where I just have to like give my husband kudos because he walked away from his dream job to come and have us move down to Florida. Now he's still gets to stay with the Department of Justice, but he is doing a very different job now. But I just have to say like that teamwork that he offered really was so meaningful. And he, he didn't hesitate. He was like, you know, let's talk about the options. Let's talk about like the logistics of it, what it would look like. And let's crunch the numbers. He's, he's very methodical. I'm, I'm more like, Hey, sounds good. Sounds great. Let's go do it. And he's like, let's sit down and crunch the numbers. And so we can make a great pair in that way. But I have to say like, it has been so meaningful as a professional woman to have a partner who understands like, okay, it was time for me to go back and really invest in my path again. And the fact that he was able to do that was, was so great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome that you have like an open communication and then like you were making sacrifices and now he's making sacrifices in his career. It's great you have the flexibility in a civilian job where the military, it's not as easy sometimes to make those choices, especially for yourself. More like you're doing this and you're like, but I don't want to do this. So are you still in the guard or did you get the, out of the guard? Perfect question. So I'm actually going to transition to the reserve now. So I'm actually still on quote terminal leave, right? I'm burning all that leave that you save up working those Pentagon jobs. And next month I'm transitioning to the reserve. So the reason I'm making that choice is, you know, guard operations can be very state specific. It's good because those domestic operations, especially natural disaster response, like you need a force that's on the ground in the state that you're serving. And the familiarity that I had developed with the Pentagon and some of those more central policy making operations is really where my sweet spot is and where my gifting is, I think. So I talked to some of my mentors again and I had to struggle, though, because like you build up a loyalty to whatever branch or whatever component that you're in. And so I was really struggling because I'm like, man, the guard has been really great to me. And I recently promoted to Colonel, which was just so gratifying and like humbling. And I'm like, wow, like the guard made that happen for me, you know? And so I went to my mentors. I'm like, I feel guilty. Like, is it okay if I switch over to the reserve, you know? And man, the, the again, like great mentors are like, okay, who cares? <laughs> Nobody's going to care. You're doing great things for the total force. 
The reserve needs good people too. This is going to work well for your family and where your talents lie. So nobody's going to, and if anybody gives you a hard time about it, tell them to go pound sand. You know what? Okay. I need to embrace that a little bit more. Cause you just, again, you have this like heaviness or guilt on your heart. Like, what do I need to give back to my team to show them I'm thankful? And, and, and I think women, we do that a lot, right? We, we prioritize the feelings of others maybe, or what other people are going to think of us. And, and at the end of the day, I know I'm serving well, and I know that there's a mission out there that could use my help. So I'm choosing to proudly go over to the reserve for the time being and and see how I can help there. That's such a great way to look at it. And yeah, I think we have this like loyalty of like, oh, I'm in the whatever. And it, and then we feel guilty and it's more in our head. And you had some really great mentors. So I know that you mentioned before we started this interview that when you became a mom, you kind of felt alone and challenged. So what did you do about that? Yeah. So I'm a little bit of an older mom. My husband and I met a little later in life. And I know that that happens for a lot of military women, you know, because we do get so focused on our careers or maybe we just didn't meet the right person. And, and you know, I, again, I go back to like, I think this was God's path for me and my husband, but we met when I was turning 35, 36, I think. And so then we had that conversation like, okay, how quickly do we want to start having kids? Because like, I don't know how long it's going to take to get pregnant. And I don't even know if I'm going to be able to. So we started down that journey and we were like, I almost feel guilty, guilty saying this, but like we got pregnant right away. Like we didn't even get a whole like year of marriage under our belt before we started, you know, knocking out babies. So that was a huge blessing, right? At the same time, I don't think I was mentally prepared to what that would mean as a career shift, what it would mean for our partnership and our marriage. And I felt very alone because again, as this older mom, like when you walk into the doctor's office and they sit you down and with like kind of a stern face, they go like, you need to understand that you're advanced maternal age. And it kind of hits you deeply like, ouch, I know I'm older, but do you have to say it that way? You know, like, yikes. Okay. Even those words coupled together, just still kind of like, it just sounds so depressing, advanced maternal age. And then I, and then I realized like, wow, actually a lot of my friend network in DC, like they had their kids in their twenties. And so I had these wonderful friends who, whose kids were late teens or getting into college. And I'm like, I don't know that I have any friends who are on this same journey as I am or this timeline. And so I just thought like, of course, who has time when their babies are like six months old or a year old, right? I didn't. But as the months progressed, I'm like, I want to create some sort of community for moms where they don't feel like they're just old and alone, but like, okay, so we had kids later, but maybe that means we're greater in some ways, you know? And so the words kind of just rolled off my tongue. I'm like, yes, later, greater moms. That's it, you know? So I, I created a Facebook page and it's out there. And and again, it's growing because again, who has time for pet projects? I don't have as much time as I would like to, but it's really just a place where we can share inspirational conversations or just share pet peeves or share funny memes. And you can go, I'm not by myself. This grouping or or I'm not the, I'm not the only 40-year-old showing up to the soccer field. <laughs> I'm not, you know, or, or sometimes people start having kids when they're younger and then have their third, fourth, fifth kids when they're over 35. And you're like, man, motherhood feels a lot different now than it did when I first had my kids. Cause you can bounce back so quickly. It's kind of like when you're younger and you're having a drink or so, man, you can crush it till two, three in the morning and wake up the next day and go do whatever you want. When you're over 35, I'll say, or especially in your forties, you're like, I just can't do that anymore. <laughs> I can't do it. So getting up at four in the morning with kids is the same way. You go, I am struggling. I am on the struggle bus big time. And so I just wanted to have people to talk to about that. You know, So again, if there's anyone listening and, and you find yourself in that position and you just want a safe place to just go and like laugh at a few things or not feel alone, check us out. Later, greater moms. 
Yeah, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And we're running out of time, but I really love this interview. And I always like to end with what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? So let's end with that. I would say don't hesitate to reach out to strangers if you want to hear unfiltered views, right? If you have family who are telling you about their experiences, awesome. Do it, but reach out to some people who might inspire you. Like go on LinkedIn, find some military women who have a path or a story that really intrigues you and don't hesitate to reach out to them. I promise you at least half will respond back. Like, yeah, we're all busy. But if someone writes me to go like, can you just tell me a little bit more about your path? I am absolutely going to find time to talk to that young lady. So don't be afraid to reach out to people, even if they're strangers. If you want to know how they got to where they're at or how you might be able to engage in a path that looks like that, reach out, send send a cold note, You know, be brave, be bold and do it. So that's how I started the podcast is I went on LinkedIn and I looked for women veterans. And then I sent them cold messages and was like, Hey, I'm starting a podcast where I interview women. You want to be on it? And over half of them said yes. And I don't have to do that anymore because the word got out. And now there's this big long list of people. I agree. And I think women veterans feel like a responsibility to help the next generation of women by preparing them for some of the challenges that are out there. And you, you've talked about mentorship and your network so much in this interview. And so It just shows how important building that network, even before you even join by reaching out to other women veterans, it's it's crucial. So thank you. Absolutely. You're, You're spot on with that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I'm really excited to share your story. Thank you, Amanda. This has been awesome. listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.